Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors, and you, our listeners, get to ask the questions. I'm Tavia Kowalchuk, and this is our Halloween episode. Ooh, spooky. So true confession, I'm a total scaredy cat. (laughs) So horror books and movies are generally not on the menu for me, so I can't really say that I have a list of scary books to recommend you for the season, except is very thematic for the for the episode. I have read every single Joe Hill book that's out there. And I'm working my way through the lock and key graphic novels. So I can recommend each and every one of those. I'm Eliza Rosenberry and I've read a bunch of Joe Hill books. We can discuss it a little later. But I have two new books to recommend for people looking for some kind of spooky, creepy Halloween reading. Not super scary, but I would say creepy. One is Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia, which just came out this summer and it was like a big New York Times bestseller. It's very I've creepy. I've seen it everywhere, everywhere. It's a really cool cover. It's like this woman in this red dress and she's against this green wall and it looks really like atmospheric. It makes um, me think of Frida Kahlo, that cover. Yeah. It's like um, it's set in Mexico as the title would indicate. And it's about a woman who goes to rescue her cousin from this – like her cousin gets falls really ill and her cousin lives in her husband's house in like this sort of far off mountain town that's very inaccessible and obviously something weird is happening in the house. It's very good. And the, the second book I want to recommend just came out. It's called Plain Bad Heroines by Emily Danforth. And it is about uh, – I think I've recommended it on our previous episode too. It's so good. It's about an all-girls boarding school – and it's kind of haunted. And then years later, they're filming a horror movie on the sort of long abandoned campus of the school. Really fun and spooky, but not scary. That sounds like I could handle that one maybe. Yeah. Yeah. On today's show, we'll discuss our first collection of short stories, the supernaturally suspenseful Full Throttle, named a New York Times notable book. And later in the show, we'll be joined by number one New York Times bestselling author, the aforementioned, the great, Joe Hill. Before we dive into this week's episode, we wanted to tell you about a chance to buy any or all of the books we've discussed on this show at a 25% discount plus free shipping. Just head over to hc.com and use the promo code BOOKCLUBGIRL, that's all one word, to stock up on engrossing and discussable reads. That's fantastic. You had me at free shipping. And then when you said... (laughs) it was for books, I was even more excited. (laughs) So it's book club girl, one word is the promo code at hc.com. Yeah. And now we present to you Full Throttle Abridged. Full Throttle contains 13 haunting and horrifying short stories. Unlike our usual abridged sections, we're just going to summarize two of our favorite stories here, but the whole book is fantastic. Two stories were co-written with Joe's father, Stephen King, and one of those, called In the Tall Grass, was adapted as a Netflix movie. You can watch it now. Another story, called By the Silver Water of Lake Champlain, was adapted as an episode of Shudder's Creepshow, also which you could watch now. Two of the stories in this book are totally original to this volume. One story is called Dark Carousel. A group of teenagers are getting into harmless trouble one summer on the boardwalk, drinking beer, riding the kiddie rides, including a pretty spooky and inappropriately fast carousel. 
After getting into an altercation with the guy operating the ride, the teens head home only for a stampede of violent animals resembling the carousel creatures to chase them down on the highway, resulting in a deadly accident. The one group member who survives is racked by guilt, haunted and traumatized for the rest of his life. And another favorite story with a very different tone is called Late Returns. A long-haul trucker returns to his hometown after the double suicide of his aging parents and winds up taking a part-time gig as a driver for the local public library's bookmobile, which is beloved by some of the community's older residents. But he soon realizes that some of the patrons who climb aboard the bookmobile are not just elderly, but they are, in fact, deceased and are trying to return library books that were due literally decades ago before they passed away. This story is beautiful and haunting, and it's a meditation on the power of storytelling and our connection with those who have come before us. All of the stories in Full Throttle capture some of our everyday anxieties and fears, while also tapping into bigger questions about morality and the search for meaning in a strange and unpredictable world. All told with Joe Hill's signature knack, for an absolutely fantastic story. So Eliza, what did you think of this collection? There's so much to discuss. Obviously, we love everything that Joe Hill writes, but I want to start with my favorite story in this book. Well, actually, okay, I have two favorite stories. So one is In the Tall Grass, which we mentioned at the top of the show. It was co-written with Joe's father, Stephen King, and it's a Netflix movie which I haven't been able to bring myself to watch yet because I'm oh, a little Eliza. scared. <laughs> you have to watch it. It it definitely adapts the story. It's not like a scene-for-scene scene presentation, but oh, it's intense. Do not watch it before you go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> the premise of the story, just very quickly, is that it's a brother and a sister, and they're taking a cross-country road trip, and they pull up to this field on the side of the highway. There's no one around, and they hear a voice from inside the field's like a little kid saying, help me, I'm lost. And they're trying to like get this kid out of the field. And then obviously they never end up leaving the field and it's like a haunted field. I don't know. It's very spooky. Um, just hearing you retell it is like giving me the creeps. Like just remembering <laughs> the story. I'm like, oh God, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of my other favorite stories, which I remember from reading the book the first time like a year or two ago is called All I Care About Is You. And it's a totally different story. It's you know, in the tall grass is sort of like a classic horror premise. All I care about is you is sort of like a futuristic sci-fi kind of story. And it's about, you know, robots and, you know, I don't know, there's just something about it that really kind of stuck with me. But I think, you know, one of the reviews of this book said, you know, this collection shows that Joe Hill can do it all. And I really feel like that's on display here. So my favorite stories, I have to say what they are, are Late Returns, which we talked about in The Abridged, and You Are Released, which is the last story in the collection. And I loved it when I read it the first time. It's about all these people on this flight, and there's awful, awful things happening down on the ground that are affecting the, the flight of this airplane. And it's about the relationships that develop between the people on the plane. But... um. I had the chance to hear Joe read the entire story live at an event. He just brought such life and dimension to the story, even beyond what my imagination did when I read it. The story, I think, will stay with me for my whole life. 
One of the things that Joe does in this book is he really plays with form. So there's a couple stories where he's like playing with the position of the words on the page in the story called The Devil on the Staircase, where he like structures the story to look like a staircase on the page um, with like, you know, steps. And then another story, I think Joe has a lot of really strong feelings about social media and Twitter. And one of the stories is told in the form of someone's Twitter feed. Like they're posting, you know, it's a, it's a teenage girl and she's posting tweets from this family vacation that she's on and obviously things go horribly wrong. That was really fun to read as well. Yeah. I remember I read Twittering from the Circus of the Dead years ago when it came out as an e-short. Um, and I just, again, like that, that feeling that goes up your spine when you're reading something that's just h- horrific. So you were talking about how Joe plays with form. One thing that I really loved is the way that he played with words. In You Are Released, one of the passengers on the plane wonders about the various intentions behind the word flash. And then in Mums, a boy wonders about what it means to plant or to be planted. Um, and, and I think that those characters' musings about these singular words is reflective of the greater sort of collection of stories. Like these stories really make you wonder like, what does it mean to desire? What does it really mean to be afraid? What does it mean to have longing or jealousy or to be amoral? Like what does this really mean and look like? And um, I, I really appreciated the way that I felt like these stories spoke to each other and were sort of reverberated off of each other. Yeah, story collections are so interesting. Like we mentioned, only two of the stories in this whole collection are totally original. The others have all been published in magazines or, you know, in some form or another previously, which is quite common for story collections. But it is so interesting, you know, the way that they're packaged together, the way that they're collected together, it can sort of, you know, bring something else to the reading experience to read a story in the context of of the author's other short works. And you also mentioned that the stories sort of all are interested in morality a little bit. And that to me was one of the sort of big takeaways, especially reading the book for the second time. There's so many good or well-meaning people in these stories that are sort of struggling with guilt or loss or shame, struggling to be good people. There are also some bad people. <laughs> but I think like the, you know, the questions about, you know, is trying to do the right thing enough? Or, you know, what if you fall short? Or what if you, what if something's holding you back from doing the right thing? I think you know, that's sort of at the core of a lot of these stories, as well as, of course, the people who have bad intentions. Eliza, I agree with everything you just said. I'm so excited to talk to Joe about this book. I have so many questions for him. And I think in honor of the characters from the book Fawn, who are always drinking beer and scotch, I'm going to toast you with a virtual glass of scotch today. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a great idea and perfect for the chilly fall weather. So cheers. Cheers. We love hearing from our listeners. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this episode. And you can also join our Facebook group, which is called the Book Club Girls, to participate in all the conversations there with other book lovers and send us your questions for authors who appear on our show. You can find the group at facebook.com slash groups slash the book club girls. Today, we're joined by Joe Hill whose book Full Throttle is out now. Welcome, Joe, to the Book Club Girl podcast. We're so happy to have you here. Hey, guys. It's great to talk to you. So to get things started, 
In the introduction to this book, you talk about writing two of these wonderful stories with your father, Stephen King. So can you tell us a little bit about what that co-writing experience was like and, and what it meant to you? You know, in terms of what the experience of writing him with, with him is like, and I talk about this in the introduction, it's like one of the Roadrunner cartoons. You know, I always feel like Y.O.E. Coyote climbing on top of the rocket. You know, my dad is the rocket. And you just kind of grab on and, and hold on for dear life. <laughs> He's an engine of story and it just blows me away. He's absolutely tireless. Eliza and I spent a lot of time discussing in the tall grass. We both had very visceral, strong, and positive reactions to that story. You know, for this podcast, I got to reread your book and I noticed that Throttle and The Devil on the Staircase each feature characters who are who identify themselves or are featured as sons. And in fact, mm. they each seem to have some of the same qualities, self-centeredness, entitlement, sort of no scruples about deception and murder. Um, sure. Could they be brothers? <laughs> could they be brothers? I mean, the son in Throttle, you know, he's in a young guy in a motorcycle gang. It's That story is kind of a Sons of Anarchy riff, you know, as well as a Richard Matheson riff. And, uh, I don't know if I can say this on the podcast. Can I say this? That kid is such a little shit. You oh, know, say it. He is. He's, you know, he's such a vile person. And then you have a father who is himself more <laughs> so morally compromised that he can't quite figure out how to put the brakes on his own kid. Mm -hmm. But maybe the dad is redeemable. I'm not sure that the kid is. So there's that. I think like a lot of writers, I write about how your experience of family as a young person shapes who you are as a grown-up. Um, I think that's a really common theme in literature, whether it's, you know, how mothers shape their daughters or fathers shape their sons. Maybe I have an outsized interest in that subject because my dad is this sort of larger-than-life figure. You know, I'm always kind of interested in, uh, I listen to a lot of Julian and Sean Lennon, and I wonder, you know, what must it be like to try to carve out your own space with this sort of, you know, um, the rock and roll's first martyr as your father, you know, how strange that must be. What must have, I wonder, like, you know, um, we're recording this just after the first presidential debate. And I wonder a lot, how did Donald Trump wind up like he is exactly? What happened in the family to make the person you see on stage? I always think that's a really interesting subject for fiction. How do you become the person you are is a question I'm always asking myself in my fiction. And the answer is usually your parents, um, that you people tend to be shaped in reaction to their parents, you know, that either they look at their mom and dad and say, boy, I hope I can be half the person they are. Or they look at their mom and dad and say, please, God, don't let me be anything like who they are. So Joe, I want to ask about the setups for your stories. Just, you know, to pull a few examples, in Dark Carousel, we have a sort of classic horror novel setup, right? Like a group of teens hanging out on the boardwalk, getting into trouble, things go wrong. <laughs> and then a few stories late, not to simplify no, it, no. and then a few stories later, we have Late Returns, which is totally different. A single older guy, I guess we don't know exactly how old he is, a single guy grieving the death of his older parents in his hometown. And so what are you looking for in a setup when you begin writing a story? I mean, I'm genre fluid. You know, I love to write you know, I love horror. I love fantasy. I love science fiction. I love crime. And I want to play with all those toys. The one thing that I look for that matters above genre is suspense. 
you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm an insecure guy, yeah. you know, I, and I think I've grown out of some of my insecurities, but I still worry constantly about people getting bored while they're reading the, you know, reading the story. And, and I want to keep them engaged. I want to keep them excited. I want to take them away from the exhaustions of everyday life. And the only way I know how to do that is with suspense, is with giving people a character they can root for and care about and invest in, and then putting that person in peril and see how they try to wiggle off the hook. I mean, I think that's the common thread really is, you know, whatever the story, whatever the, the theme, whatever, whether it's science fiction, whether it's horror, it's always about what do we do when we're faced with peril? And that need not be physical peril. It can be moral peril. It can be emotional peril. It can be historical peril. The last story in the collection, You Are Released, is about nine people on a 747 flying across country from LA to Boston on the day World War III breaks out and all the missiles launch. And I was thinking, what would it be like to be on that plane? And no one can control something like that. It's it's the horror of being swept up in in a frightening moment in history. Joe, I'll never forget when I heard you read it at your event downtown when the hardcover came out. It was it just added so much to the story for me. Well thank you. In Fawn, which was I thought one of the most imaginative stories in the book, hunters pay a steep price for the chance to chase fairy tale game in an enchanted world beyond a little green door. They get to shoot and kill Cyclops, Fawn, and Orcs. One of the things I really liked about this story is that it ends with, for, for me, which was a very satisfying justice. And I think it you know, it ties into things you were saying earlier, but I want to specifically ask you if you were at all inspired by the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, totally. I mean, and, you know, Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. My imagination is still deeply rooted in the stories I loved as a kid. Mm. I mean, here I am, I'm 50 years old, and I still think a lot about young adult fiction, whether it's, you know, Harry Potter or Narnia or uh, what have you. Um, and in these stories, there's a whole genre of stories about plucky, usually English children bravely stepping into a world of classical fantasy and um, making personal and moral discoveries as they fight evil, you know, next to talking badgers and uh, centaurs. And I've thought for years, mm -hmm. why is it always a good little kid who needs a moral education, who finds their way to Neverland. You know, what if someone a little more unsavory found one of those secret doors into a world of fantasy? <laughs> what would that person do? And, you know, I began thinking how funny it would be if someone shot Mr. Tumnus. How would we feel if someone went into Middle Earth and then, you know, cut down an ent and made a table out of it? You know, I just think that that's funny. The idea makes me laugh. And then, you know, usually whenever I have an idea that makes me laugh, I want to pick at it some to see if there might be a story there. I think there turned out to be a pretty good one there with Fawn. Joe, I want to ask you about a different story. I loved the sort of slippery, like subtle shifts in by the silver water of Lake Champlain between sort of reality and imagination. So the perspective is from a little girl who's pretending at the start of the story to be a robot, and she's identified as a robot. 
And it's not clear to the reader right away if she's a girl or robot. And so later in the story, when she discovers this lake monster on the beach, it's still not really clear to the reader, like what's her imagination and what's really happening. And so can you share a little bit about how you approached writing that? And also if while you're writing something like that, that's sort of ambiguous, if you have a definitive sense of what's real or not. Instead of speaking about that story first, I'm going to, I'm just going to sort of jump back in time to a story called 20th Century Ghost, which was in my first collection. And in it, it's set in uh, the 1940s and a young man who's too young to fight in World War II has learned his older brother has died in the war. At the time, they didn't have a term for PTSD or for a clinical term for what he, what he goes through afterwards, but he's clearly badly shaken and in a state of grief and adrift. And after a day of breaking windows and petty theft, he winds up going to his small town's movie theater where he meets uh, the dead lady who haunts the cinema and it changes his life. And the thing is, is when I wrote the story, I felt it was possible to believe that the ghost was not real, that she was actually more of a psychological projection. She was something he needed to see to understand that life continues after death, that death is not the end, to bring him to a sense of peace with his own grief. And I do think, you know, especially in a short story, maybe, you want to look at a subject, I, I always, you know, and in a lot of stories of the supernatural as well, I'm always interested to see if it can be written in a way where we believe in the supernatural element, but we also think it's possible that we're deeply anchored in someone's perspective and they may be psychologically off, that we're not completely sure that we're getting the straight story of what happened. And so this is also true of By the Silver Waters of Lake Champlain, which begins with, we think we're meeting a robot. After a page or two, it becomes clear it's actually a little girl wearing a pot on her head who has been you know, reading stories about robots and is now pretending to be a robot herself. Her and her sisters are driven outside by her mother, who has a dreadful hangover. And they wander down to the shoreline of Lake Champlain, where in the mist, they discover the corpse of a lake monster, a creature, something like Nessie. And I think it's reasonable to ask, did they really find a lake monster or is it more pretend? And I think you can have it either way. In a sense, it doesn't matter because what the story is really about is about how children can see more possibility in the world than grownups can. You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Joe Hill, whose book, Full Throttle, is out now. You can read more about Joe's books at bookclubgirl.com. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, we ask Joe about his literary white whale. Stick around. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by Hench, debut novel from Natalie Zena Walshots a clever and modern twist on the classic superhero universe told from the perspective of a millennial gig economy worker. Hench is on sale now. Welcome back to the show. Each week, we bring you a fascinating new conversation with an author who's written a book we think is a great choice for book clubs to read together. Today, award-winning and best-selling author Joe Hill is here with us answering questions about his latest collection of short stories, Full Throttle. Okay, so I've got a, a question. It's a, a little bit of buildup, so stick with me. 
in Throttle, the father seems to have started the grieving process for himself and his son years before we even meet them in the story. In Fawn, a whole community grieves their fallen brethren now mounted on the walls of a main farmhouse. In Mums, a boy grieves his dead mom. In Late Returns, every character longs for someone who has passed. The examples sort of stack up in your book, and it seems to me as a reader that grief is often the thing that propels your characters. Do you have thoughts about this, or I am totally making something up? (laughs) No, I don't think you're making something up. I think that if you begin a story with someone who's lost something, then you know they're on the hunt for something that they you know they've lost something and they want to fill that hole um and so a lot of my stories do wrestle with grief with with loss and i think that this is sort of the state of being human that we're always sort of trying to make peace with what we don't have anymore it could be someone we love but it could also just be you know, uh, a time in our life, uh, you know, a car we liked, you know, there's a certain amount of grief that you feel when your little kids aren't little kids anymore, you know, and trying to figure that out, how to, you know, how to deal with the hits that we all take in the course of a life. That's a big part of what, you know, fiction looks into. Thank you for answering my my very long question. <laughs> so, Joe, I want to ask you, you know, at the end of every episode of our Mine and Tavia's podcast, we ask our author the same question. So the question is, what is your literary white whale? What is a book that you've always meant to read or one that you started reading and just have never finished? I've never read any of the Russian novelists. So I've never read, you know, War and Peace. And I feel a little guilty about that, but I'm also a chronic lowbrow, you know? And so it's sort of tough to imagine I'm ever going to get around to it. I'm more interested in binge reads than worthy reads. I read Moby Dick a few years ago. I thought it was pretty great. Um, But I'm sort of a, you know, sweep me away kind of reader. Thank you so much for coming on our show. We've been looking forward to this for weeks. We had so much fun rereading the book. And it's just really, really great to pick your brain about these wonderful stories. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I had a blast. This was a lot of fun. That was Joe Hill, whose book, Full Throttle, is out now. To find out more about Full Throttle and all of Joe Hill's other wonderful books, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and leave a review. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast, tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You will hear from us again in two weeks when we'll be speaking with Jennifer Robeson, author of the fan favorite historical novel, The Gown. If you want to read the book before the podcast drops, head over to harpercollins.com and use promo code BOOKCLUBGIRL for 25% off and free shipping for any book discussed on this podcast. That's a great deal. You can join our next conversation. We will be speaking with romance legend Julia Quinn, author of the Bridgerton series. If you have a question for Julia before the Netflix adaptation of her beloved historical romance series, you can email us at thegirls at bookclubgirl.com or post in the comments on our Facebook group. You can also leave us a voicemail. Our number is 212-207-7336.
Before we go, we'd like to thank Charles de Montebello, who produced today's episode, Jennifer Brell, Joe's wonderful longtime editor who introduced us to Joe many years ago, and of course, Joe himself for setting up a home studio and joining us for this conversation. Until next time, I'm Tavia. And I'm Eliza. Happy reading! I didn't actually mean to become a librarian. When I walked in there, five weeks after I buried my parents, I didn't have anything in mind beyond returning a grotesquely overdue book. My parents had left behind a teetering pile of unpaid medical bills and still owed $100,000 on the loan they took out to put me through college. Wasted money. I'd netted a bachelor's in English at Boston University, but it had done less for me, in strictly financial terms, than the eight-week course that earned me a commercial driver's license. I had no job, about $1,200 to my name, and there was no insurance payout coming, not in the wake of what amounted to a murder-suicide. My father's lawyer, Neil Bellock, suggested that my best option was to get rid of anything I didn't absolutely have to keep for myself and sell the house. If I were lucky, it would pay their outstanding bills and leave me with enough to float on until I booked a job with another shipping company. So I propped open the doors, bought a couple of boxes of heavy-duty garbage bags, rented a steam vacuum, and went to work. My parents had let the place go in the last year of their lives. It got away from them, and I hadn't wanted to see it. The dust on everything, the mouse droppings in the carpet, half the light bulbs out, and mold spotting the wallpaper in the dark hallway between the living room and the master bedroom. The house smelled like Bengay and abandonment. It came to me that in the last year, I had abandoned them. I was glad to get rid of their stuff. Everything I unloaded was one less thing to remind me of their last unhappy months, facing blindness and dementia alone, making up their minds to take one final ride in the caddy together, to drive away from their troubles without ever leaving the garage. I brought musty comforters and piles of dresses to Goodwill. I put the couch out in the yard with a cardboard free sign on it. No one wanted it, but I left it out there. It rotted in the rain. I stuck a broom under the bed to get at the dust bunnies and swept out a pair of my dad's jockeys in one of my mother's shoe boxes. I took a peek in the box, expecting to find a pair of heels, and was stunned to discover that it contained nearly $2,000 in unpaid parking and speeding tickets. There was an unpaid parking violation from the city of Boston that dated to 1993. There was also an unpaid dentist bill from 2004, a VHS copy of When Harry Met Sally from Blockbuster Video, and a paperback titled Another Marvelous Thing. I didn't understand how the book connected to the other items until I flipped open the back cover. It was a library book, and I knew at first glance that my mother had borrowed it in the last century and never got around to returning it. There was a lending card in the back, tucked into a stiff beige pocket, stamped with a return date. A relic from that ancient, fabled era before Facebook. At a dime a day, we probably owed the library our whole house, or at least the cost of a replacement book. The dentist my mother had stiffed retired in 2011 and now lived in Arizona. The local blockbuster had long since been replaced by a cell phone dealership. I figured my mom was off the hook for the parking tickets. You couldn't try a dead woman. That left the book. I stuck another marvelous thing into the pocket of my baggy army jacket and got moving. <laughs>